that he's the one that put on um, Hillel, the great sage, arranged the, um, the calendar, which takes us through a cycle of 19 years. And there's a reason why he used that cycle where the moon and the sun once again line up um, to its original position. And therefore, today we know exactly when every Rosh Chodesh, when exactly the month is going to end and when it's going to start. Um, just to share with you some of the complications of that um, is because the exact solar or its lunar orbit is 29 days, 12 hours, 393 particles of a minute. And because of that, we have 29 and a half days, which means that we never have a full month. So if we always make it 29 days, those half days are going to add up. If we always make it 30 days, those half days are going to add up. Thus, we sometimes have a 29-day month and sometimes a 30-day month, all according to the calendar, in order to keep us on schedule with the moon actual orbit. Anyway, so Rosh Chodesh is going to be this coming Wednesday. I also want to point out that in this Torah portion, uh, specifically this Torah portion, when we always read it around this time of year, it tells us the exact date of Aaron's passing, which is very, very unusual. Not Moses' date is listed in the Torah. Not Abram, Isaac, and Jacob's day is listed in the Torah. It is specifically Aaron that we're told that he passed away on this coming Wednesday, the first of the month of Av. Um, very interesting. And we can talk about that too in the Q&A um, afterwards. Why? Why would we need to know specifically Aaron? What's the connection with the Rosh Chodesh of, which will become, it has become later on, the, the day of starting the very intense morning, the nine days before the destruction of the temple. But be, you know what? Let me just shoot it out here right now. If we look in the ethics of our fathers, we'll see over there that it talks about Aaron, that Aaron was the pursuer of peace, the lover of people. And so much so that the Torah tells us, unlike by Moses, where it was primarily the men who studied under him, who appreciated him, who were mourning, Unlike that, by Aaron, it says both the men and the women mourned because he was the one that always made domestic peace, peace between business partners, peace between friends. Now, we spoke about that he died on the day that would begin the nine-day mourning period that led up to the destruction of the temple. If we look in the Talmud, the Talmud tells us the reason why the Talmud was destroyed was primarily because of baseless hatred. Thus, on the very day Rosh Chodesh was already planted, the power and the inheritance to be able to not only not have baseless hatred, not even rightful hatred, but to have total forgiveness, purity of heart, and love for the other. So much so, that our sages uses a very unique word. It doesn't say that Aaron loved humans. He actually says he loved creations. And our sages teach us that the inside of that word creations is that even a person who has no saving grace other than he is the creation or she is the creation of God, that was enough for Aaron to teach us such a person needs to be loved. So it's very apropos that it's telling us in this Torah portion, right before Rosh Chodesh of, that the secret of getting out of exile and bringing back the temple, get rid of the cause and you'll get rid of the effect. The cause is baseless hatred. The way to get rid of that is to be, as our, our sages say, from the students of Aaron. Okay, so those two things are coming up. Now, also, this Torah portion is a double header. Why the double header? So we have 54 Torah portions. In, in, in different holy books, it refers to it as 53, the garden, Gan, 
the Garden of Torah, but if you count them, they're 54. And the reason why they count to 53 is because the, one of the two last ones, are, are not the two last ones, but close to the two last ones, Nitzav and Vayelach are really considered one that's divided only when necessary because of the holiday setup. But being as it may, getting back to what we need to talk about, there is no 54 Saturdays, Shabbatot, in which to read the Torah portion to finish the annual cycle. Especially so, when it's not a leap year, especially so we have holidays that coincide with Shabbat, which take us away from reading the annual cycle and to read specifically the holiday cycle. However, because we are determined to finish the Torah before the holiday of Simchat Torah, to finish it every year in one year cycle. Thus, looking at the years and the Shabbatot and the, the lineup, we have certain parshas, certain Torah portions that double up. Not only do they double up, but the Rebbe of Righteous Memory would point out that we specifically, in the fourth reading, the person who's called up for that Aliyah makes the blessing the opening blessing in the first Torah portion and the after blessing in the second Torah portion, thus truly turning two portions into one. That's a, a very specific um, way that we do it. So we have these last two Torah portions and, and there's a lot to talk about here. So let's get through the Torah portions first. The Torah portions begin with the laws of an oath, taking an oath. Now, I've just this week read a teaching of the Rebbe, which clarifies that the Torah has no reason to tell us that when we keep an oath, when we make an oath, we have to keep it. Simply speaking, the Torah already told us in Leviticus, Umidvar Sheketirchak, and from the words of a lie, you should distance yourself. We've already learned this concept of keeping promises when it comes to sacrifices, if we make an oath that we're going to bring a certain sacrifice. So this Torah portion is not here to teach us about making the oath as much as it's teaching us how we can, in certain instances, get out of making an oath. Now, there are two ways to get out of making an oath. And it depends who's doing it. If it's a, a sage or if it's a three people getting together, one way is to annul and one way is to undo it. For example, if someone makes a, a, an oath, I actually had someone come over to me and ask me to help him out about this. If someone made an oath that he was going to do, I remember specifically, this guy was making an oath. He made an oath that he was going to keep this ridiculous low-carb diet per day. And he simply could not. And the way one would walk him out of that oath would be by asking him, when you made this oath, did you have in mind that even if it is impossible or the doctor tells you to stop or you would experience such lightheadedness and such health issues that you would still keep this promise. In other words, because the laws of a promise depends on the intentions of the person when they're making the promise, thus we can help him back out of his promise by questioning and ascertaining what he did mean, and if, the, and if this situation isn't applicable, what he had in mind, then the oath is, becomes no more oath. And, and by the way, this is so serious that a person making an oath can say, I hereby make an oath not to do A, B, and C, according to the way my friend Shui understands this. And then the rabbis would not be talking to me in order to back me out of the oath. They would actually have to talk to Shui because it's his intentions that matters. So much so that the sages say, and the law is, if someone says that I make this oath upon the intentions and thoughts of the masses, 
such an oath can never be undone because you have to take in consideration every single person's intention of what he or she thought when this guy was making the oath. Now, another way is to simply annul the vow. It's not to walk him out of it, but to help him say that, listen, I made a mistake and so forth and so on. And by the way, one of the famous things that we all know about this is that Yom Kippur begins with such a, an act of Betin, in which the entire community says Kol Nidre, which literally is an annulment of vows. Now, the, the major interesting case here is concerning the woman. Now, we need to understand what's going on here. Because the woman is called the Akeret Habayit, she is the foundation of the home. Thus, what she takes upon herself affects the whole home. Therefore, the type of promises that she makes, and only specifically those type of promises that affect the family, her family, thus it can be undone by the father when she's single at home, by the husband when she's married, by both father and mother when she's engaged, and only by her own when she's divorced and returns back home to, to be alone or a widow. Again, the reason behind this is, our sages tell us, specifically, if a husband takes upon himself something, it's not going to affect the whole home. While a wife, as the mother, and as the wife, and as the foundation of the home, we need to make sure that she doesn't take upon herself things that would affect the others in the house. And, and I understand a lot of people see this as like, uh, really, how come, how come she can't nullify the husband's work? And, but I, I'm just going to accept that I'm talking to people that clearly at this point understand and appreciate that if there's any, any religion book that truly and fully um, does give respect and, and more than respect to the woman, it is the Torah. So we're not looking here at anyone like, oh, the woman, there's specific reasons and only specific oaths and promises that she takes. Now, after we talk about those laws, we're going to go back again to the story that started off last week and ended off two weeks ago. So the Midianites send their women with idols to get the Jewish people to commit idolatry and idolatry. And through that, a plague broke out and 24,000 Jewish people died in the plague. Over here, we're being commanded to take revenge against those people that went so far to send their own daughters just to entice, just that we would be, we would have a plague. And they go to war and the war is very unique. The war is not the way we normally have the army goes out and the people that we count, the males from 20 to, no, it says clearly a thousand from each tribe. And in this specific instance, we counted tribes with Joseph's two sons becoming one and the tribe of Levi being number 12. So every tribe of the Jewish people were involved in this in giving a thousand soldiers. And with these 12,000, they went to war. And they actually were successful and they came back and with a lot of spoils of war. Now part of the spoils of war in the days of old were the women and the children. And Moses, it tells us that Moses actually got angry at them and told them, how can you bring back the very women that were the ones that were sinning with our men? They literally recognized the women. And thus those women that 
got involved in adultery and idolatry were killed and all the rest was given to, were allowed to be kept by the Jewish people, all the spoils of war. Now, the spoils of war were divided in this instance that half of it went to the Jewish nation, divided, and half of them went to the men of war. Now, in the half from the men of war, they actually said, we want to give away all, what was it, the, the gold, I think it was, they gave away saying that because God is the one that saved us and we, we suffered no losses, therefore, we want to give this away. And then there was a tax upon each of, each of the, the groups, the, the half that went to the Jewish people and the half that went to the, the men of the war in, in, what they, in, in what they had to give from, from that portion. I'm sorry, I'm just looking up. I want to just remember exactly what was the item that they, that they gave. Okay, I'll, I'll forgive me. I'll have to look that up. Now, because Moses got angry, Moses forgot a very specific law. And Rashi tells us, I'll say, just say, because he allowed himself to get angry, he got angry at the Jewish people for bringing back the women. So therefore, he actually forgot a certain war. And what was the war that he, what was the law that he forgot? The law was koshering things and to put things in the mikvah. Now, I want to be clear here. It's an opportunity to clarify things. There are two separate concepts. Number one, anything that is used for non-kosher food, if it was used through heat, then we say that the pores of the utensil expanded and it absorbed the flavor of the food and thus it has to be koshered. The law of koshering is the way it was absorbed, so it is ext extracted, which then means that something that you cooked, you put into a boiling hot water. Something that you used with fire, you go ahead and you put into the, uh, it, you, use, you use a torch, or today we use a self-clean oven to get it red hot. Um, a, an issue we have, for example, is that which is used for frying. So oil is hotter than water, so you can't use it in boiling water. You have to use it through the fire method. That is the laws of kosher just to extract non-kosher flavor from the pot so that the Jewish person can then use it. There's a different law, which has nothing what to do with the laws of kosher. It becomes part of the laws of kosher because you're not allowed to use it for cooking or eating if you don't do it. But in its actual meaning, it's not about at all about the laws of kosher. And that is that even if you buy something brand new, not sub, excuse me, not something that was used ever. So there's no kosher issue here. Before you can use it, you need to put it into the mikvah. There's a special blessing and you immerse it into a kosher mikvah. Now, the reason for that is it's more in the relationship of conversion from idol worship than it is from any other concept. And why so? Because in the days of old, atheists were not exactly a common thing. Every person was a true believer. And being a believer, a man of faith, it was the norm, it was the custom that you dedicated everything you did to your deity. Thus, in a certain sense, there is an attachment of idolatry to any utensil that was made by a Gentile because he would have dedicated that work and his craftsmanship to his deity, which is why something that was made by a Jew does not have to go to a mikvah. Something that was made by a non-Jew whether it's new or whether it was old and you koshered it, you have to put it into the mikvah. That is the law. 
Now, I just want to tell you, there is an opinion that's brought down that in desperate times, you could go ahead and you could go ahead and use it once before you put it into mikvah. People don't like that. Some people do use it. I do know that when it came to the times of COVID and people had new utensils, especially for Passover, there was huge, huge rabbis working out because they couldn't take it to the mikvah, how they can use it. And there was a whole process. You give it a gift. And you, there was a process. But just telling you that this all comes from this week's Torah portion, which Elazar, who's now the high priest, being that his father died, so he's the nephew of Moses. And nevertheless, even though he's not allowed to talk in front of his teacher to go ahead and teach, you can't say a, a law in front of your teacher. But nevertheless, in a case where he saw clearly that this is concerning a sin and a mitzvah and a law, he had no choice because Moses forgot to stop the Jewish people from going ahead and doing a sin. Okay, so that's, that's the next Torah portion here. And I was right, it was the gold, by the way. Now we get to an interesting portion. So Moses had leads the Jewish people into conquering some land across the Jordan River. That means they didn't cross it yet. It's across from Israel. So these laws concerning the lands that are outside of the Jordan River, and they captured it not because it was within the boundaries of, of Israel, but if you remember when Moses wanted to pass through and they didn't allow him to pass through, they came out to war. So God tells him, go to war. He conquers it. Now, it's very interesting, the whole definition of these couple of lands, because there are mitzvahs that are completely dependent upon being the land of Israel. When it comes to certain agricultural laws and other laws, there are different opinions of what is the law of the holiness of these lands. But simply speaking, we learn out that even though it does have a holiness, but it doesn't have the holiness of the lands of Israel proper once you cross the Jordan. Now, two tribes, latest two and a half, but we say over here, two tribes come over to Moses and they tell Moses, this is beautiful land for pasturing. You know that we have a an amazing amount of livestock. We're asking you to let us settle here, give us this land as our portions, and this is where we'll settle. And we won't take anything when we cross the river. To Moses, this is deja vu. 40 years ago, the Jewish people tell Moses, we don't want to cross the land of Israel the Jordan into the land of Israel. We don't want to have this war. We don't want to conquer the land. We're afraid. And it cost them 40 years in the desert. So Moses tells them, you got to be kidding me. What are you doing? You want to again stir up this whole thing? And they tell Moses, no, 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 no. We're not looking not to go to war. We will go with our brethren into war. And not only that, but they are chalutzim. They will become the pioneers in the war. And they actually committed to Moses. It's really interesting because Moses was just concerned that they not go back home until the war will be complete. However, they said, we will not return home until the, our, our brethren conquer the land and settle the land. And as we know later in the book of Joshua, it took seven years to conquer and seven years to settle. So they actually tagged on seven additional years before they would be able to go back home and settle with their families because that's not what Moses asked them, but that's what they committed to. Now, in this case where the Torah is telling us of an oath that was made, between them and Moses, and Moses and them, we learn out the laws of oath. For example, one of the laws is that when you make a oath, what the, a biblical oath, you have to use double language. They said, if we do do this, we will receive the land. 
if we don't do this, we won't receive the land. So this Torah portion is actually extrapolated and, and dissected to understand the laws of an oath, the process of how we make an oath. They made the oath and Moses agreed to it. Now, after that, Moses tells the Jewish people that I will not be here. He tells Joshua and the Jewish people, you should know that this is the oath and the agreement and you people will enforce it. And then it goes on to say how Moses gave them the lands, which lands he gave to which part of the tribes, the, the, the two tribes, the Reuven and the God, and they settle it down. And from there we go into the next and final Torah portion of the book of Numbers. And it begins with saying, these are the journeys. Moses is recapping to the Jewish people the journeys, and our commentaries tell us that when a father was traveling with his son to get somewhere, so then after that, he goes over the journey. You remember how over here you got sick, and remember how over here you, had, you experienced this miracle. Moses is going through the journeys of the 40 years telling the Jewish people and reminding them what took place and over here and over there. Now, just that you should know, the number of journeys that the Jewish people took from Egypt to Israel is 42 journeys. Not only that, you should know that the journeys pretty much took place in the beginning and at the end, and for long periods of time, they were in one place. It wasn't like they were consistently journeying. And it actually says that within the 38 years, they only journeyed, the 39 years, they journeyed 20 journeys, and they weren't consistently, Hashem wasn't just, okay, pack it up, move, okay, settle down, okay, pack it up, move. It was primarily settled. Now, why do we have to know this? Everything in the Torah is here to teach us today in our lives. So I just want to share with you that there are mystical meanings behind the name of every single city they journeyed from and to, which has metaphorical impact on us. And what I mean by that is, there's a great teaching from the Baal Shem Tov that says, every soul from when it descends, the birth of a person, until it ascends, the death of a person, goes through Mem Bet Masaot, 42 journeys. I want to just give you one little insight. I'm not, uh, you know, I don't know um, the details of these, ju these journeys, um, what they mean on a metaphorical level, but I do want to give you one insight. In Kabbalah, there are two numbers, 42 and 49. For those of you who know, there is a mighty prayer made by a very great sage, known as Anna Bechoach, and it's made up of seven verses, each one having six words. And there's huge Kabbalistic stuff going on with that prayer. Now, the reason why it's Kabbalistic, I can just tell you how it's explained in Chabad Hasidus, is the number 42 represents upward yearning, the number 49 represents downward drawing. And the reason for that is, that the life sustenance and experiences of the world, which was created in seven days, which was created by the seven primary emotion emanations, that the first six is, so to speak, the light. The seventh one is the vessel, so to speak, in an overall way. The job of the seventh one is to draw down. The first six if they're not going to be drawn down by the seventh, they're going to go up, just like a flame if it's not attached to a wick. Thus, by having the seven verses made out of six instead of seven, this is the prayer of elevation because it has the first six emotion emanations without the seventh. Thus, this journey that we're talking about from the descent of the soul is a journey of elevation through someone's lifetime. That's just one Kabbalistic insight to why we're reading all these travels that the Jewish people did, which why is that part of a Torah? 
That could have been part of a, a different book, not the five books of Moses, which is every verse and every story has to be an eternal lesson to me here and now in this generation, in this year, in this country, in this city. Now, after that, we are told that we're going to cross over the Jordan River. We're going to conquer Israel. And God is very clear that we cannot coexist with any other idol worshipers in the land of Israel. And even the Gentiles that were given permission to live in Israel that didn't have to be banished or killed, the one, the one commitment they had to make was not to have idol worship. If a Gentile came to Israel and said, I want to live here, but I'm not willing to give up idol worship, he's not allowed in, and if he, and if he just doesn't leave, he actually is treated like an enemy, and there's a war. And he's, he's put to death. You're not allowed to live in Israel if you're not willing to give up all idol worship. And the simple reason for this is because God keeps on saying, I don't want you to learn from their ways. You are safe in a protected environment, in the clouds of glory, in the desert. But now that you're going into the land of Israel, your land has to be cleansed completely from idol worship. You don't have to go out and have war with anyone outside of your land because of idol worship. But in your land, there cannot be any idol worship. And then we, the Torah goes on to give the specific boundaries of the land of Israel. Now, leave it up to Judaism to have who knows how many opinions on what these biblical boundaries truly are in today's map. So we don't have a clarity of it, but there's different opinions. One opinion I saw has it going until Damascus. Whatever it is, the boundaries of the land is defined here. Now, I want to be clear. In the times of King David, when the Jews had to expand, in the times of King Solomon, those lands that were added on are different than the specific lands that God told Moses is your land. And therefore, it affects in how we keep the mitzvot and what we do. By the way, just to put things in perspective, out of 613 mitzvot, we have 200 and pika that are applicable today because the 400 plus are dependent upon the land of Israel, the majority of the Jewish people, Roiv Minyan Ubinyan, living in the land of Israel with the Holy Temple. So you understand that understanding the boundaries of Israel is not just about a nationality. It's actually about our religion and our people in how we serve God or what we can't serve God with until it's returned to us. Now, let's go on and say uh, again, um, the generation that left Egypt all died out in the desert. Moses knew that he wasn't going to go in and he was about to pass on. So thus he's appointing Joshua and telling Joshua and Elazar who are the leaders of each tribe that will represent the tribe and inherit the tribe's land for them. Okay. And then we have another interesting, one more mitzvah, and then an interesting story. So the tribe of Levi does not get a portion in the land of Israel. The way that Israel is divided into 12 tribes is because Jacob promised Joseph that when it comes to inheriting the land, his tribe will break into his two sons, which is Manasseh and Ephraim. The tribe of Levi won't be counted. So you have 12 tribes inheriting the land with Levi inheriting nothing. And the simple reason why the, tri the, the tribe of Levi is not to inherit any of the land is simply because God is their portion. They are to be focused consistently on the holy temple and that work. And thus they were to remain separated from the the financial and then all the physical pursuit. 
And in order for them to be able to survive, God, we already learned in previous portions, God gave them the um, 24 gifts on which they get. They get the tithing, they get the truma, they get certain parts of the sacrifices, and so forth and so on. And this is all for them to be able to survive and stick to the spiritual world. So it's kind of like a partnership. You know, we'll take care of you and you take care of our spiritual obligations in the, in the holy house because no one else is allowed to walk into it lest they be punished by death. Now, spiritual death. Now, with that being said, where are they going to live? So we have the, the, the laws in this week's Torah portion, how they are to be given the 49 lands, that this is where they are to live. This is their portion. It's no man's land from a perspective of, of that, that no one can live there other than the Levites, and it wasn't their portion. It was the other tribes had to give away living space for them. Now, of these different, of these different uh, cities, there's some of the cities that were specifically pro proclaimed as the city of absorption for the person who killed someone else unintentionally, the Are Miklat. Now, when we learn about the Ore Miklot, we're taught that six cities were set aside. Parenthetically speaking, before I get into the details, and this is far from parenthetically, this is one of the proofs of our sages from the Torah that we have to have Mashiach, Mashiach will come. Because in the Torah, it doesn't say anywhere directly that there's going to be a Mashiach. It's later on in the books of prophets and scriptures. But this verse clearly says that it, we're taught of this mitzvah, that when our land expands, you're to add on another three. And being that every mitzvah must be ultimately fulfilled, and we never experienced that mitzvah yet, thus we know that there's going to be a time when we're going to have back the land, and not only the seven land, but the ten lands, the ten nations, and then we will fulfill the rest of the mitzvah with the other three cities. But be it as it may, if someone gets murdered by someone, so the perpetrator, the first thing he does is runs to the city of absorption. And why does he run to the city of absorption? Because any family member from the victim which is called a Goyel Hadam, redeemer of his family member's blood, may come across this guy and kill him for killing someone in his family. Thus, in the city of absorption, he is protected. Once he gets to the city of, of, the, of, of absorption, the courthouse then sends guards to protect him and bring him to the courthouse to be able to prove whether he did it intentionally and then he has to be put to death, he cannot hide in the city of absorption, or whether he did it unintentionally and then he's brought back safely to the city of absorption. And not only does he live there, he even gets buried there because that city absorbs him until the death of the high priest. And our sages want to know what, what did the high priest do wrong? And the answer is that the high priest who went into the Holy of Holies should be able to protect his people from unintentional murder. That's why, parenthetically speaking, the mother of the high priest after Yom Kippur, which was the most dangerous day for the high priest when he went into the Holy of Holies, if he made it out alive, she made a feast for all those people in the city of absorption, thanking them for not praying that her son should die so that they should be able to go back home. These laws are very detailed in the Talmud tracts and Hedrin, and later in Maimonides, there are some cases in which a person can never leave depending when the murder happened. Was it after the death of the first Kohen Gadol? The second Kohen Gadol wasn't appointed yet. There's a lot of details going on in this. But that is the city of absorption. Now, after that, I'm just going to tell you the last piece of the Torah portion. And then I want to focus on what we call a siyum. 
So, as you recall from last week, the five daughters of Tzlavchad, he had no sons, he only had daughters, and they said, what will happen to our father's portion in the land? As I explained last week already, that the people who died in the desert are the ones that inherited it, and they give it as an inheritance to their kids. So we count the family count, not by the families of the tribes going into Israel, but by the family count of the tribes that left Egypt. Tzlovchad not having a son would end up not having anyone to receive, inherit his portion in the land. And thus they came to Moses, let us inherit it. And Moses asked God and God said, they are speaking correctly and let them inherit it. Now came along their tribesmen and they said, whoa, one second. Slavchad is one of our tribes. It's one of our tribesmen. And now what happens is he has no sons. He only has daughters. The daughters are going to marry other tribesmen and therefore from a different tribe. And therefore, when they die, their children receive the tribe identity of the father. That means in our area, in the land of Israel, we're going to have other tribes owning pieces. And that's not fair. We want everything in our tribe, like every other tribe, to belong to our tribe. And God actually agrees with them. And the five daughters of Tzalafchad are commanded to marry tribesmen, whoever they want, but tribesmen, so that their children will be tribesmen. And therefore, Tzalafchad's portion in the tribe's lot will remain in the tribe's lot. Okay, that is the Torah portion. And then tomorrow, I mean, Shabbat, you hear the Torah reading, at this point everyone stands up and says, Chazak, Chazak, Venis Chazak, where we go from strength to strength, hence the Shabbat is called Shabbat Chazak. Now, I'm going to share with you a thought, and again, this is my own thought, and I need to tell you it's my own thought, you know, because it's not like I'm quoting a teaching, and then it's with a certainty. I want to just share with you that the custom is, when you finish a book, you make a siyum. Siyum literally means closing. But the Jewish tradition of making a closing is to acknowledge how the Torah is eternal and thus we learn it again and again, getting into deeper and deeper and deeper layers. And thus what we say at a siyum is, Hadran, I will return to you. And in order to do that, we immediately connect the closing piece of the, the book together with the opening piece of the book. That is the tradition of making a seum. Now, even though normally this is a one of a set of five books and you would make a, a seum on the entire Torah, and that's what Simcha's Torah is all about, I want to just make a seum on this specific book and its applications to this time of the year. So the Torah portion, I just want to put things in perspective. The book of Genesis takes us from Adam till the death of Jacob and his 12 sons. The book of Exodus begins with Moses, takes us to, through the slavery, through the Exodus, through standing at Mount Sinai, through getting the Ten Commandments, through the, the story of the golden calf, through getting the second tablets, and through the commandments and the actual building of the tabernacle. The book of Leviticus begins with all the laws of everything that concerns the tabernacle. The laws of the Kohanim, the laws of the sacrifices, so forth and so on. Now, the book of Numbers takes us from there until the border of Israel. It's Moses' death. So, basically, we stayed at Mount Sinai for over a year. We received the Torah, we built a tabernacle, and then as the verse says, in the second year, on the second month, they start traveling. 
So basically, the book of Numbers is taking us from the second month and the second year till the end of the 40th year where Moses dies. And then the next book begins with Joshua. I'm sorry, the next book begins with the eulogy, or not the eulogy, I'm sorry, the final departing words of, of uh, Moses, which is Deuteronomy. Now, this, this concept, the first Torah portions of the book of Bamidbar defines, God says to count the Jewish people, and he's very specific that you count them by tribes. He doesn't want a nation count. He wants a tribe count. And then we know the total of all the tribes together. After that, once we have a count of each tribe, we then, the next thing the Torah portion does is gives us clarity in how they camped. There were the three circles. The inner circle was the tabernacle. The middle circle was the tribe of Levi. And the outer circle had three tribes on each side. And thus you had the 12 tribes. Then it goes ahead and it tells us how they traveled. In what way they traveled. Who went first? Who went second? How was the tabernacle disassembled? How was it carried? How was it reassembled? Then after that, it continues with all the stories. And then what do we see at the closing story is once again tribe identity. So it starts with... Literally, Rashi learns out from a word in the beginning of, of the book of Numbers that they actually had to show proof of who their father was and which tribe. We were very careful with tribe identity, family identity. What's happening at the end of the book? The end of the book is once again focusing on the importance of tribe identity, family identity. We don't want other members living and owning land in ours. We want to have our tribe as an identity. Everyone gets along, but this is our tribe. This is your tribe, so forth and so on. And I was sitting and thinking, why? I know what the book of Numbers is doing. It's taking us from Egypt to Israel, from slavery to freedom, to becoming a people. But why is the opening and closing of this book so focused on tribe slash family identity rather than the identity of individual? You know, in 1970, we had the Beatles teaching us a song, Imagine All the People. Imagine we all didn't have tribes. We didn't have religions. We didn't have, we're all one people. We're all equal. And yet here the Torah is identifying for us, that in order to leave slavery and become a free person, you need to have a tribe identity, you need to have a family identity. And I believe that that is specifically what is going on here. The slave literally does not have an identity other than he is property of his master. Literally, sold as property, owned as property, so much so that even his children, so to speak, aren't his children in the sense that the master can decide that he's now taking these kids and selling them to a different person. And this notion that this, this slave has no identity is primarily expressed in the fact that he doesn't have a tribe, he doesn't have a family, he is property of someone else. The definition of becoming a free man is not the individuality that we each experience as hormonal adolescents, thinking that the only way I can be me is by proving that I'm not my father and my mother but rather the true definition of becoming a free nation is when we truly embrace being part of a tribe, part of a community, part of a family. I've told my children as they were growing up, your first name is you. 
your last name is us. And never forget that the you is part of the us. And thus the book of numbers is telling us we all have individuality. Everyone is unique. God did not create any doubles. There is no purpose for doubles. If you and I are exactly alike, one of us is unnecessary. But nevertheless, like we learn in fractions, the common denominator is the primary identity. The branch that isn't connected to the tree and the tree that isn't connected to the roots and the roots that isn't connected specifically to its soil, in its continent, under its properties, whether and all, is a tree that will not last long. It's just being a driven leaf blown around by wherever the present winds are happening to be blowing. And thus, and thus, the process of going out of Egypt and going into Israel, the process of leaving slavery and becoming a people is by understanding the preciousness and connection to a tribe, to a community, and to a family. And that's what allows us to be free men. And that's all I have to say in the matter. And I'll unmute all. Oh, okay. I guess people are unmuted there. Okay, people, you have to unmute yourself. You're unmuted by me. Thank you, Rabbi. You're very, very, very welcome. Thank you, Rabbi. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. People. No questions. No questions. So let me just share. People, stay safe. It's, uh, you know, whatever's going on is going on, but stay safe. And I think now more than ever, it's so important to remember that we're part of a community. And, and also, I said I was going to connect it to this time of the year. What has kept us alive throughout two millenniums of exile and persecution is not the leaves, but the fact that the leaves are attached to the branches and the branches are attached to the trees, the trees are attached to the, to the roots and the roots are attached to the ground. The fact that we always knew we're part of a people, the fact that we knew that we're responsible for each other all over the world during exile is what keeps us alive. And with that, I'm going to wish you all the best, people. You too, Rabbi. Thank you.